podcast, 73, July 20th, 2022. On today's podcast, I will first address five interesting questions and finish reading from chapter four of my first investment book, Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing. Today's reading warns readers of the folly in giving away control of your investment portfolio. After I finish reading chapter four from my investment book, I will then add the first chapter of my audiobook, Duel. It will be coming out in a few months. Duel was my first novel and is available in print and in ebook format at Amazon.com. I hope this chapter entertains you. My name is Ian Duncan MacDonald. I am the author of four investment books and three novels. Question number one. Why don't all companies pay dividends to their investors? The purpose of a company is to make a profit. Without profits, companies go bankrupt. The executives responsible for a company are paid to make revenue and expense decisions that result in a profit. Profits are something they can directly impact. They do not control share prices. Share prices are determined by the interplay between optimistic speculators and pessimistic speculators speculating on the froth of future share prices. Whether a company buys dividends or not is determined by the board of directors of the corporation. Unfortunately, things have become muddied by the directors approving such things as executive stock option bonus programs which are based on share prices rising. These bonuses distract the executives away from maximizing profits and encourage them to do cosmetic things that make the company's shares attractive to speculators. For example, taking money from the profits and using it to bid up large quantities of the company's shares on the open market. This makes it appear to speculators that the stock is in demand. It artificially raises the share prices so the executives get their bonuses. Unfortunately, it is not making the company more profitable, or is it more competitive? They can seriously weaken a company's future potential. Why shareholders buy into the BS that buybacks are good for a company escape me. I refuse to invest in companies that do not show they can pay ever-rising dividend payouts year after year. I want to see proof of a company's strength reflected in their dividend payouts, not in their share price. Dividends are paid from profits and reflect the true health of the company. I want the executives concentrating on profits. Question number two. Why do markets stop falling and start rising? Pessimistic speculators drive down the stock prices. Optimistic speculators cause the stock prices to rise. The two schools of speculation are in constant conflict with each other. The reason markets stop falling occurs When speculators sitting on cash accept that stocks are now at a bargain price, they cannot resist investing in a perceived opportunity to get rich quick. 
Some pessimistic speculators turn into optimistic speculators when they see prices that low. It is the bait of a fear of missing the chances to get rich quick from a market that has turned from a falling market to a rising market. Sometimes they get the timing right. Share price movement has little to do with profitability of financially strong companies. They remain profitable through the market crashes and continue to pay their steady dividends despite the fall in their share prices caused by the pessimistic speculators. This can easily be proven by looking at share price and dividend payouts over the last few decades. Question number three. What career would you choose to prepare to be a successful investor? If you are looking for analytical experience that will give you a deep understanding of how businesses are born, become successful, or fail and die, I would suggest seeking a background in commercial credit management with a large corporation that sells through cyclical, volatile commodity industries like mining and oil extraction. In such a job, you will learn more about business risks, scams, calculated risks, and how to quickly make important decisions quickly with serious consequences for your inevitable judgment errors. You will learn to deal with the stress of sales departments who want you to approve the risky million-dollar sale to reach their sales objectives and the accountants who fear the dicey sale will cause a loss that will stop them from reaching their profit objectives. Commercial credit risk would prepare you for your ultimate objective, which would be financially independent living well off your well-managed stock portfolio as a self-directed investor. There is little difference between stock analysis and commercial credit analysis, except stock analysis is easier. There are about 25 million businesses in North America for which credit decisions are being made every few seconds, but there are only about 16,000 businesses traded on public stock exchanges. These public companies are all required to make their current audited financial information available to the public. Mountains of free, easily accessible information, and all 16,000 are available in seconds. The most active are being analyzed daily and reported on. You can learn a great deal about commercial risk when you must dig hard to find any information on the typical private company to make your risk decision. Question number four. Why do investment advisor contracts contain clauses that state the advisor is not responsible for any loss that might arise from the following advice? No one can accurately predict future share prices or portfolio growth. If a client loses money and decides to sue the investment advisor and the investment company, the first step in the defense against such a lawsuit is to haul out the signed contract where the client agreed that neither the investment advisor nor his or her employer were responsible for any loss. They usually write this clause in fine print 
and legalese at the end of the long contract every investment advisor client must sign. They really don't want the investors to notice it. They want the investor to buy into the illusion of sure wealth that they sold them. It is not unusual for a large bank to employ a dozen or more lawyers who do nothing but figure out how best to protect their employer from multi-million dollar lawsuits and to settle lawsuits that do get initiated. The clause has nothing to do with the competence of the investment advisor. It is just a legal due diligence in a business where a large percentage of clients do lose money are not happy about losing it. Question number five. Would you buy a penny stock? If the definition of a penny stock is one that trades under $5 a share, then I do own a few financially strong penny stocks paying good dividends. Just because a stock is trading under $5 does not mean it is financially weak. If you go to page 124 of the American High Dividend Handbook, you will find in the sort by share price that there are 15 stocks that at the time the book was released in December of 2021 were trading at less than $5. These stocks have all been scored. The highest score is 54 and the lowest score is 29. I personally avoid stocks that score under 50. The highest score I have ever calculated with the IDM stock scoring software was a 78 and the lowest was a 4. I have calculated thousands of scores. The highest score of the 15 stocks is 54. It is for B2B Gold. The lowest score, 29, is Falcon Minerals Company. B2B is paying a dividend of 4.30%, and Falcon is paying a dividend of 14%. When you go to the unique page for B2B Gold, you can see that four years ago it was trading at $2.77 and has increased to $3.90, a gain of 40%. Its book value is $3.09. The operating margin is 43.80%. Its price to earnings ratio is 6.9. It is trading 6,715 thousand shares daily on, on average. It has four strong buy recommendations by analysts. There are many major corporations trading for 10 times as much per share that do not have the good stats that this company has. The point is that you can make money in penny stocks if you do the same analysis as you would do with any stock. Money is money. If I am getting a 40% gain on my money and receiving a good dividend from a financially strong stock, do I really care that it is trading at under $5? The reason I would hesitate to buy B2B is that 2021 was the first year it paid a dividend. I would want to see several years of dividend payments. However, Compared to some of the speculative investments I have seen, it would be given some serious consideration. 
I am now going to finish reading Chapter 4 of Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing. This chapter is titled Sudden Wealth. The book was released in 2019. It will be followed by Chapter 1 of my novel, Duel. Chapter 4 begins with, While business experience teaches entrepreneurs to trust no one with their money, it is surprising when investing that they will entrust their life savings to an investment advisor just because the advisor works for a large bank. I sent Miss Innocence an article that appeared in the website Espresso with the heading, Is Your Financial Advisor Trying to Trick You? Watch out for these signs. It described 20 areas of concern. For example, pushing to buy or sell a stock, guaranteeing a profit, not being transparent about how advisors earn their money, not finding time to talk to clients, not diversifying your stocks, not supplying references, not being open about the risk. Nowhere in this article was the safety and self-directed portfolios discussed. There was no warning to stay away from investment advisors. It was as if this writer assumed that we all must invest through an investment advisor. It made no mention of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that can be saved over a lifetime by self-directed investing. A full-service financial advisor expects you to sign a contract that pays him every year from 1% to perhaps 2.5% of the value of your portfolio. The more money you invest, the less you should be paying. The investment advisor may try the highest rate possible to see if he can get away with it. Miss Innocent was paying 1%. She felt this percentage was negligible and was surprised when I told her that 1% was costing her thousands of dollars every year. I calculated that she was paying her investment advisor $5,000 an hour for the time he spent on her behalf. Since she never looked at her itemized statements, she admits the additional $7,000 she was paying annually in various fees. The portfolio manager responsible for her portfolio was making more trades in a month than I would make in my portfolio in 10 years. While neglecting to point out these fees, the investment advisor told her she could write off whatever he charged as a legitimate expense on her income tax. Her income was so diminished that there would be no taxable income to write them off against. The failure to comprehend what is in a stockbroker's fee report is not uncommon. It is believed that these reports are deliberately included with or added to the end of other less important documents. They are disguised as just another document to be safely ignored. Few investors understand how indirect fees work and easily underestimate their costs. Miss Innocent's grievous error was giving the investment advisor total control over her portfolio. At the time, it seemed to be a wonderful idea and one less task that she would have to be bothered with. 
For the bank, it was like being handed a signed blank check. It appears that they did not miss the opportunity to milk her portfolio for all that their conscience and loose laws allowed. While her portfolio declined each year, she continued to accept his explanation that it was just the nature of investing. The investment advisor had told her he was investing her money conservatively, so she accepted that she should not be expecting any growth. When Miss Innocence retired, she began to receive an income from her portfolio each month. That investment advisor was selling off a bit of her portfolio every month never occurred to her. She never asked how this income was being realized. She assumed it was dividends. Successful professional athletes who receive multi-million dollar contracts are more naive than Miss Innocence. Few have business experience or investment knowledge. Every athlete's career is short. They know it can end with one catastrophic injury. They also know it is wise to invest enough of their big income to provide them with a worry-free, comfortable lifestyle after their sports career is over. Like sugar attracts flies, aggressive investment advisors seek them out. For a tiny percentage of their wealth, these advisors offer to manage and grow their wealth. Often, athletes suspect that these investment advisors are just salesmen who want to line their pockets. However, they think they must acquire professional investment help like the rest of their teammates. It can become a status thing. All rich guys have investor advisors, don't they? No, many rich guys are still rich because they stayed away from investment advisors. According to a study done by Sports Illustrated, 78% of National Football League players within two years of retiring were financially insolvent. The National Basketball Association's Players Association reported 60% of its members were broke within five years after retiring. The common reason for their lack of savings was the blind trust they put in the investment advisor they had chosen. While most of us worry about funding a retirement for 20 years, an athlete with a million-dollar paycheck needs to worry about funding it for 50 years. A soft-directed portfolio over a lifetime can save professional athletes and little old ladies hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps even millions of dollars. However, it is stressful for some people to make decisions that have large sums of money, while it may appear to be less stressful to pay someone to make investment decisions for you, it is not without the stress of constantly debating whether you can trust that person. Some investors also convince themselves that they are too busy to establish and monitor a portfolio. Others may want to deflect decision-making responsibilities by having an investment advisor to blame for future investment decisions that may cost them millions. If you feel you must invest with an investment advisor, then I hope this book makes you paranoid. Let it make you question your advisor on every recommended investment. 
As you read further, you will receive a measuring stick that will help you measure the viability of any investment. Do not give your investment advisor the freedom to have his way with your money. Changes to your portfolio should only be made after you sign off that you understand the pros and cons of any proposed changes. Keep asking everything about your investments until you understand how you are benefiting from the investment advisor's involvement with your money. This book will help you communicate with your investment advisor. He will realize that you know enough about investing to catch any effort to try to slide any greedy little things by you. You may learn that your portfolio is in the hands of a mysterious portfolio manager and your investment advisor has no control over what goes in or out of it. You may have to blindly accept this reality if you wish the bank's full investment service package. The question then becomes, can you accept full service when you now know that self-directed investing is a viable, safer option? Tight control of your expenses is as important as controlling your investment income. If you cannot account for how little you have available to invest, I recommend that before continuing, you skip ahead and read Chapter 11 on Frugal Living. It may show you where to find thousands of dollars under your control to invest. Very few people have a six-figure liquidity to invest in the stock market. Those under 30 years of age have far more debt than assets. Many are trying to pay off large student loans. Just keeping ahead of their bills is a challenge. Car payments, the rent, utility bills gobble up most of their income. However, in time, with increased income and fewer debts, they too can, if they carefully manage your money, have surplus cash to invest. A self-directed investment portfolio, no matter how small, is preparation for making important investment risk decisions later in life. There is a payoff for becoming familiar with investment vocabulary, how to sort stock purchases from best to worst, the simple process of acquiring a stock, diversifying stocks, and understanding how businesses are born, survive, and die. It could also give a small boost to your income. While investing may appear to be intimidating, with familiarity, it opens the gates to an exciting world. Fear of making a mistake in the investment process often discourages many from opening self-directed investing accounts. It shouldn't. The banks that offer self-directed investment services have made it very difficult for a novice investor to make a mistake. For example, some have computer systems that not, will not allow you to buy more stock than you have the cash to pay for. They always make you reconfirm what you are ordering. If you put in an order higher than the current market price for a stock, they will lower your buying price to the current price. Some banks have expert staff available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, who without a charge will answer any customer questions. 
They also have free online investment courses that can broaden your knowledge and expertise. Take charge of your future happiness by managing your own investment portfolio. The following is the first chapter of an audiobook I am creating from the novel Duel that I wrote almost 10 years ago. The audiobook will be released in a few months. It is very much based on the friction between the United States and China, which over these last 10 years has grown. The novel is available from Amazon.com in both a print format and in an ebook format that can be acquired almost instantly. I have lowered the prices on it to make it attractive. I hope it will not only entertain you, but give you some insights into politics, cultural differences, and human nature that you may not have previously considered. Duel. Author, Ian Duncan MacDonald. Narrators, Ian MacDonald and Carmen MacDonald. Recorded July 16, 2022. Chapter 1. The State Department. Floating, he was lost in the rhythm, breathing easily, oblivious to the smooth movement of his body. Suddenly, his five-mile treadmill run was rudely interrupted. One of Russell Horseman's officious assistants, looking totally out of place in his dark blue suit and tie, had invaded the Foreign Affairs Recreation Association gym. The officious assistant was shouting at him over the noise of the music in the machines. All Rob Lyons caught was, Hurry, an emergency meeting upstairs at 8.15. You have to be there. Rob looked at the clock on the gym wall. It said 7.40 a.m. He slowed the machine down to a slow walk to lower his pounding heart. The assistant impatiently paced and fidgeted, waiting for Rob to get off the treadmill. Everyone in the gym was staring at them. Drenched in good honest sweat, Rob headed for the showers. The assistant marched along behind him. As he was drying himself off after a quick shower, Rob glanced at the television suspended from the ceiling of the dressing room. It was perpetually set on CNN. They were interviewing Senator Rick Wilcox. A Google picture of the island of St. Matt's flashed on the screen. That got Rob's immediate attention. He moved closer to the television so he could read the closed caption. Now he understood why he was being summoned to an unscheduled meeting. Horseman's assistant escorted him to a couch outside the closed door of a meeting room on the top floor. Rob had never been there before. He was told to sit and wait on a couch until summoned. Inside that meeting room, the Secretary of State, Colleen McSween, slowly sipped her black coffee and scrutinized her top advisors. The big guns had finally arrived, the Deputy Secretary of State, the Chief of Staff, the Director of the Office of Global Intergovernmental Affairs, and the Assistant Secretary in charge of the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. For an 8.15 Monday morning crisis meeting, it was a good turnout. She twirled and whirled her white bead necklace, oblivious to all the eyes that were riveted her nervous habit. On her command, 
these aging civil servants had quickly assembled around the elaborately carved antique table of her meeting room on the top floor of the Harry S. Truman Building. They were a dignified, uptight bunch. President Willie Brown, during breakfast, had been watching Senator Wilcox's press conference on CNN. He had almost choked on his cereal when Senator Wilcox dramatically said the Chinese were developing a naval base on an eastern Caribbean island. An agitated president had immediately phoned the Secretary of State to find out what she was doing about this intrusion into America's sphere of influence. Fortunately, Colleen had also been watching CNN. She at least knew what the president was excited about. When the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, who watched Fox in the morning, was contacted by the president, he had a hard time explaining why he had never heard of an island called St. Matt's. He also had a difficult time explaining why he had not been informed of the senator's press conference on CNN. His protests that it had only been minutes since Senator Wilcox's appearance on CNN were ignored. Those sitting around the table were trying to judge what kind of mood Max Sween was in and whether she would buy their rapidly drafted action plan. Her reputation for sarcasm and ability to pick holes in their elaborate, clever plans was legendary. A large monitor filled almost the entire south wall of the meeting room. It displayed a satellite image of an island. The island was almost round. It had a narrow channel at the south end, leading into a large circular harbor. The shadows in the photographs showed that the ring of mountains around the harbor were high and would provide protection from whatever the Atlantic Ocean could hurl at that island. The dark mahogany table was polished to a rich sheen. It reflected the early morning's winter sun annoyingly right into Colleen's steely blue eyes. She put her coffee gently down on a deep blue embossed leather coaster and motioned to the hovering white jacketed waiter to close the blinds. As soon as the blinds closed, the murmuring undertones and the tapping on communication devices ceased. All eyes focused on her. Is that the island that Senator Wilcox said we should nuke into oblivion? She sarcastically murmured. There were few quiet chuckles from the more insecure brown noses at the table. The very dignified, tall, thin, white-haired Russell Horsman, Assistant Secretary of Western Hemisphere Affairs, under whose mandate St. Matt's fell, slowly stood and in quiet, modulated tones responded. Madam Secretary, that is St. Matt's. He took himself and his responsibilities very seriously. He had failed to hear any humor in the Secretary of State's sarcastic comment. If any of his subordinates had been in the meeting and had chuckled, they would have received a severe frown for their lack of dignity. He was fond of saying, there is nothing funny at State. Not intimidated by Hosman's professorial air, Colleen McSween fixed her gaze on him and tossed out another seemingly offhand question just to establish who was boss. What's its claim to fame beside the rumors of it being the People's Republic of China's favorite Caribbean island? Given his chance to shine, Horsemont was quick to respond. Discovered on September 21st in 1494 by Christopher Columbus on his 
second voyage. The patron saint for that day is the Apostle St. Matthew. Over the years, St. Matthew has been corrupted down to St. Matt's. Russell coughed, looked around the room to see if anyone was impressed with the obscure gem of knowledge. He continued, It is an island nation of about 65 square miles, the most easterly of the Caribbean islands, about 80 miles east of the better-known island of Antigua. Originally a French colony, it was awarded to the British in the 1713 Treaty of Utrecht. It remained a British colony until it became independent in 1981. Its democratically elected parliamentary form of government is modeled on the British system. The British monarch is the nominal head of government. A governor general is the king's official representative on the island, although the role is largely ceremonial. He paused and took a staged, slow sip of his coffee and scanned the room to see if there were any of his peers who dared to interrupt and make some brownie points with the boss lady. There were none this morning. He continued. For centuries, great wealth was realized on the island from the growing of sugarcane. Until the 19th century, it was the richest colony per capita in the British Empire. The riches deserted St. Matt's when Britain outlawed slavery in 1834. This made sugarcane cultivation unprofitable. Slavery continued in Cuba and Brazil for several more decades, and these countries became rich from sugar. When Europeans started to grow sugar beets to meet their sugar needs, sugarcane cultivation in the Caribbean became unprofitable. The descendants of those African slaves that were brought in to work the cane fields are still there. St. Matt's has a population that is about 95% black. He paused again to see if there were any challenges to his historical interpretation. Seeing no challenges, he took another sip of his coffee and continued. These days, they have a tourist-based economy. It brings in money for only a few months in the winter, and they struggle for the rest of the year. About half the tourists come from the U.S. There are two American medical schools there. They cater to a few thousand foreign students, mostly Americans. These are students whose marks weren't good enough to get into U.S. medical schools. Housing and feeding these students are important in an economy where $10,000 a year is an average salary. The locals, by our standards, are poor. The lifespan for men is about 72 years and about 79 years for women. The population of about 40,000 has been shrinking steadily for the last 40 years. Their biggest export is their citizens who leave for far better opportunities in the United States, Canada, and Britain. 
I should also not fail to mention that there's also an estimated population of 80,000 vervet African monkeys. It is believed this population grew from a few pets that the French settlers set free when they abandoned the island two centuries ago. With this kernel of critical intelligence, Colleen McSween stopped twirling her beads and looked up. She wondered what the hell monkeys had to do with this morning's meeting. Perhaps Russell Horsemont was getting a bit senile? She looked at her watch and wondered where he was going with his monologue. Russell Horsemont did not seem to notice her impatience. He droned on. Their education system is based on the British system and is quite good, with a level of literacy, according to international testing, better than the U.S. There is one giant 700-room hotel casino on the island. With its 1,200 employees, it is the island's largest employer. The hotel's hidden ownership is to believe to be the New York mob. They appear to be using the operation to launder money from various illegal foreign operations. There is a high murder rate on the island, which arise out of the turf wars to control the transportation of dog drugs up the Caribbean island chain from South America to the United States. The assistant secretary paused took another sip of his coffee and checked the room to make sure no one had nodded off. The Secretary of State started to impatiently tap her beads on the table. Russell took the hint and got to the point. What is unique about St. Matt's is this excellent harbor, probably one of the best in the world. The Assistant Secretary used a laser pointer to project a small bright red arrow on the monitor. He pointed to the slit in the donut-shaped island. It has a narrow entrance about 800 feet wide, which opens up into a basin about six miles in diameter. Both the channel and the harbor are deep. The harbor is a flooded cone of an extinct volcano and is protected on all sides by a ring of mountains. That basin could easily protect a whole fleet from any hurricane. Until independence, it was the British Navy's South Atlantic headquarters. Although abandoned for decades, the fortifications on both sides of the channel entrance and the naval infrastructure were built to last and could be easily activated. For dramatic effect, he took another long sip of coffee before getting to the essence of why they were all gathered around this table. The signing of a secret agreement between the government of St. Matt's and the People's Republic of China would benefit both parties. It would bring jobs and much-needed capital to the island, while giving the Chinese an opportunity to counter America's military bases in Korea, Japan, and the Philippines. We, of course, see their proposed interjection into what has been our private lake as a direct strategic threat 
against the national security of the United States. Our objective should be to remove the direct threat by whatever means it takes. Russell Horsmans shot a quick glance over at the Secretary of State to see if he had overstepped his authority in concluding what their policy should be. She nodded her head in agreement. Horsman sat feeling pleased that the information his assistants had quickly cobbled together had made him appear to be the truly professional wise elder statement that in his mind he knew he was. Ralph Pasha, the Assistant Secretary of Military Affairs, a large round man fattened by many fine meals hosted by military hardware lobbyists, earnestly interjected. Does this include dropping a nuclear bomb on the island as Senator Wilcox has proposed? Peering at Pasha with his face a mask of disdain and disbelief, Russell replied in his most patrician voice. Although such a response lies within our capabilities, obliterating any sovereign state, even one as small and defenseless as this one, would have horrible diplomatic repercussions. Honey usually works a lot better than vinegar. We need to see why St. Matt's feels that snubbing us is to their benefit. Next, we need to do our best to change their mind. If we can't change their mind, then perhaps an invasion, like we carried out in Grenada in 1983, might make sense. However, initially, sanctions, a blockade, and even a suspension of relationships with this government may be all that is required to bring them in line. We really don't know what they are thinking. Our first step is to investigate what Senator Wilcox states and their entities. Are they really going to provide a Western Hemisphere naval base for the Chinese, or are we just having our chaining to test our response? There was silence while this was considered. Then the Secretary of State threw out the question, Russell, do you have any idea who leaked this supposedly secret agreement to Wilcox? The Assistant Secretary of Western Hemisphere responded, No, Madam Secretary, but it is my understanding that our friends at the Central Intelligence Agency are looking into it. The Secretary of State turned to her right. Is that true, Mr. Castles? Neil Castles, a slim gray weasel with a comb over, was the CIA liaison with the State Department. He wore a wrinkled, dated gray suit. He had bought it off the bargain rack for $200. He nervously cleared his throat. This was a new appointment for him, and he hoped it would be a stepping stone to a higher salary grade. His voice was unusually high-pitched, nasal, and irritating. That's right, Madam Secretary, it is under investigation. At this stage, we have not confirmed that such an agreement is even being considered by these two nations. Ever since the Chinese opened an embassy there, we've been tracking their involvement in St. Matt's. 
It seems to be just grants and loans for building new roads, schools, and hospitals. These benefits were in exchange for St. Matt's declaration that the PRC was the only legitimate Chinese government. Until a few years ago, St. Matt's had been supporters of Taiwan's claim to being Chinese legitimate government. The PRC's policy is to deny foreign aid to supporters of Taiwan. In view of the aid that other Caribbean islands were getting from the PRC, St. Matt's switched their support. The Chinese have poured billions of dollars into the Caribbean. We can confirm there are now thousands of Chinese nationals on the island fixing the roads and building schools. With our distractions in Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and with Cuba no longer a concern after the withdrawal of the Russians from Cuba at the end of the Cold War, the Caribbean has really been our back on the back burner. In our absence, the Chinese have moved in. Madam Secretary, be assured, as soon as we nail down some hard information, we will be advising the State Department. He paused and then continued. Perhaps all this is the figment of Senator Wilcox's very active imagination. After all, he is facing an election in November, and any free publicity helps him generate donations to his campaign. Colleen McSween, in a very quiet voice, but in a tone that left no doubt that this was a top priority for everyone at the table, said, President Brown is very concerned about the situation and needs our recommendations on how it can be quickly resolved. The fact that he too is facing re-election in November means he wants to put a lid on this. Russell Horseman responded equally quietly. Since this is such a foggy situation, I believe we need a skilled State Department analyst on the ground in St. Matt's as soon as possible. He would, of course, be there unofficially. We wouldn't want them to think that the only superpower in the world is at all concerned about what goes on in this tropical pimple. We don't have representation on the island? The secretary incredulously inquired. No, the closest embassy is Barbados. They handle most of these small Caribbean nations. However, we do have an honorary American consulate there, an elderly judge in his 70s who retired there several years ago. I talked to him just before I came to the meeting, but he seems to have only a superficial understanding of what is going on in the island. Neil Castles looked like he was going to object to this infringement upon the CIA's fact-gathering turf, but thought better of it. After all, it was a State Department meeting, and there was a fine line between spying and gathering of information for diplomatic decisions. The Secretary of State inquired, Don't we have anyone we could parachute in there today to assess the situation? Someone who won't stand out like a sore thumb, but be able to give us some credible information. There was silence while this was considered. A horseman smiled smugly and mentally patted himself on the back for his own intelligence and foresight. He had skillfully manipulated the secretary to where he wanted her to be. With his usual smug air of superiority, he responded, 
we may have caught a bit of a break here. We have an analyst in the policy planning staff, a smart young fellow, Dr. Rob Lyons, who may be able to assist us. He has a doctorate in history and has some success in predicting Chinese government trends. He flashed a picture of Rob Lyons on the monitor and continued. Dr. Lyons is an American, born in New Jersey. His mother, Monique Bishop, was born in St. Matt's in one of the island's leading families. He flashed a picture of an older but still beautiful black woman on the monitor and continued. She was sent to Canada for her secondary and post-secondary education. She married a schoolmate there, a Canadian, Colin Lyons. He joined Bull and Goring's in Toronto after graduating from university. He was subsequently transferred to an executive position in their head office in New York while still in his early 30s. He flashed a picture of a heavy-set, blue-eyed, white, tough-looking businessman on the screen. He did not look 70 years old. He went back to Canada as the president of their subsidiary and then eventually ended up in New York as B&G's senior vice president in charge of all their international operations. I have met with him many times over the years. Some of you may not know this, but when the Central Intelligence Agency was being set up after the Second World War, it was staffed by many ex-Bull and Goring people. They were one of the few large international organizations that had an expertise in gathering huge volumes of strategic data for every corner of the world through their branch offices and correspondence. Although B&G is a public company traded on the New York Stock Exchange, they have always had a close working relationship with us, the CAA, and many other departments. Their ability to quickly supply credible risk reports on every business in the world for almost two centuries has proven to be an invaluable resource to not only our government, but many governments around the world. Rob Lyons not only has a good pedigree, but he has legitimate passports for the USA, Canada, and most importantly, St. Matt's. His parents are now retired. They spend the winters in St. Matt's and are down there right now. I'm sure they would not object to a visit from their son. He's waiting outside if you would like him to join the meeting. The Secretary of State nodded and said, by all means, bring him in. Let's get a look at him. Russell went out of the meeting room and returned in a few minutes with Rob Lyons. He was six foot five inches tall with amazing green eyes going prematurely bald. He had recently started shaving his entire head. Some people, like Rob, look good bald. He was wearing an expensive Yves Saint Laurent suit that hugged his body. It made him look extremely fit and strong. Like many children of mixed race marriage, it was difficult to visually peg his ancestry. He liked to put on an exaggerated Spanish accent when he was asked what he was, and he would say, Dominican. He thought it was funny. 
Bigger, stronger, and more coordinated than the other kids, he had excelled at sports. He was always the first chosen for any team when he wasn't doing the choosing. His mother had gotten him into martial arts at a very young age to strengthen his lungs to help counter juvenile asthma attacks. She had almost fainted when he came back all bruised and bloody after his first kickboxing match. He persisted and was soon winning martial arts tournaments. A natural leader, he was laid back, funny, creative, and quietly competitive. He made friends easily and they stayed friends. While his parents were able to afford him every opportunity, much of his education had been paid for by scholarships and grants. He had been an outstanding student. Having Canadian citizenship through his father, he was able to study at the University of Toronto, Canada's largest and most prestigious university, for a fraction of what it would have cost him if he had been a foreign student or had chosen a prestigious American university. U of T was his parents' alma mater. That is where they had met and where he had wanted to go to school. While still a graduate student, Rob had married a Chinese medical student from Singapore, Pov Gek Fan. She was 10 years older than Rob and they had recently been divorced. He, her wealthy parents, had engineered her first marriage into one of Singapore's best families. They were embarrassed socially when she walked out on her first husband, left for medical schools in Canada. They were horrified when she chose to marry some foreign, mixed-race, near-penniless student who was almost 10 years younger than herself. They had threatened to sever all connections with her. When that did not bring her into line, they reluctantly tolerated her defiant behavior. Her parents' disapproval had cast a black cloud over the marriage. Festering away just beneath the surface, it was always an irritant. For two years, they lived the carefree bohemian existence of graduate students in their small one-bedroom flat, a few blocks from the university. Upon graduation, career opportunities arose in two different countries. Both were stubborn and ambitious. Unable to abandon the attractive job offers, they reached the conclusion that divorce was the only logical solution. They parted as friends, wished each other well, and set forth to meet their new challenges. When Rob thought back over the two years they'd had together, he thought of the fun times and all that Hogek had taught him about Chinese culture, the unusual but great food she had cooked for him, like winkles in a brown bee sauce, which they had eaten with toothpicks. He remembered how hard it had been training his fingers to use chopsticks. At night, he remembered her amazing sexual energy. Rob had accepted a position at the U.S. Department in Washington. The last he had heard, Paul Geck was practicing medicine in Australia. The Secretary of State motioned for a chair to be placed next to her. Those around the table shifted to accommodate his inclusion. She stood and shook Rob's hand. Dr. Lyons, thank you for joining us. I believe you're aware of Senator Wilcox's press conference in which he announced an agreement between St. Matt's and China? Yes, I watched it on CNN this morning. What is your assessment of what is going on in St. Matt's? 
I've spent a lot of time in St. Matt's. I'm always interested in what is going on there, probably because I know the issues of most of the politicians. I read their daily newspaper on the internet just to keep on top of things. Prime Minister Chumley is brilliant in his own way, but he sometimes lets his emotions overcome his common sense. He is a skilled, greedy, ruthless politician. Although he comes from a poor family, he's become very wealthy, and there are many rumors and conjectures as to how he acquired his fortunes. Many of the old moneyed families on the island are appalled by the changes he has made, but afraid to show any opposition. Those who have spoken up against him have been harassed until they felt compelled to sell out and leave the island, having everything they owned on the island confiscated through questionable legal means. He paused and then continued. If this agreement with the Chinese doesn't surprise me, he will love the political rewards that snubbing the U.S. gets him at home and abroad. In the islands and in most places in the world, America is usually seen as an insensitive, arrogant bully that pushes foreign governments around and denigrates anything that is not American. I'm also sure that Chumley would make sure that he was well rewarded by the Chinese for his assistance. I would not be surprised to learn that he is the one who leaked their secret negotiations with the Chinese to Senator Wilcox. The room was quiet. It was unusual for a State Department employee to be so bluntly disparaging of America's image abroad. The Secretary of State realized that this was someone who would tell her the truth without sugarcoating it. She turned to him and said, Can you fly down and give us a quick assessment of what is going on? Of course, there is a daily American Airlines afternoon flight out of Miami that I might be able to catch. Are you sure you want to take this on? It is potentially dangerous. Neither the Chinese nor Chumley are going to appreciate any interference in their plans. While we will do everything we can to shield you from harm, we need to be sure that you understand the dangers inherent in this assignment. I could get hit by a taxi crossing Pennsylvania Avenue this afternoon. Every day is potentially dangerous. Don't worry. I can take care of myself. I am not without resources in St. Matt's. As well, I, more than anyone in this room, really cares what happens to St. Matt's, and I fear that Chumley has got them into something that could destroy the island. Colleen McSween looked at Rob Lyons long and hard. She saw the commitment shining in his eyes. She had warned him. He was an adult working for the State Department. She now took the steps where were available to protect him. A communication technician will meet you at your apartment within the next two hours to link you into our satellite system and give you instruction in how to use our new experimental X200 communication device. Ralph Pasha, the Assistant Secretary of Military Affairs, interjected. In view of the importance of your assignment, the necessity to get you on that flight, I'll arrange for the Air Force to fly you to Miami International. I'll arrange for a car to drive you to Dallas. If you need any further military assistance, just call me at this private number. He handed Rob his card. Well, also, of course, make sure you get a seat on the flight to St. Matt's. The flight is bound to be overbooked as the world media descends on the St. Matt's looking for the next hot story. 
Thanks to Senator Wilcox's impetuous remarks, I had considered having the Air Force fly you all the way to St. Matt's, but that would get the attention of Chumley and the Chinese intelligent operations. We want your trip to appear to be just a normal family visit. Your St. Mattian's passport will hopefully keep you under their radar. Rob quickly responded. Okay, I'd better get going if I'm going to pack and catch the flight from Miami. The Secretary of State nodded her agreement. Making sure the CIA was not overlooked, Castle's the CIA liaison interjected. We have a field staff on the island. They will contact you after you arrive. Rod stood up, shook the Secretary of State's hand, nodded to the rest of the room full of suits, and left. The Secretary of State waited for him to leave before addressing the CIA liaison. Can you arrange for unmanned drones to be circling St. Matt's 24 hours a day? Make sure they are fully armed. I want them to keep a close eye on Rob Lyons in case he needs immediate assistance. We also need to keep a close eye on Chumley and Chinese. She then added viciously, If possible, see that Chumley becomes aware of the armed drone so he can consider the possibility that at any minute the United States could zap him off the face of this earth if he should step too far over the line. He nodded his agreement and raised a question. Well, I'm sure that Dr. Lyons is an outstanding employee. It concerns me that his training and gathering and delivering relevant strategic intelligence is lacking. The X-200 will equip Dr. Lyons with all the communicate technology he needs. All he needs to do is to get us in front of the right people. The gathering and delivering of the data will take care of itself. I think with his connections on the island, he'll be able to do this better than any CIA operative. With that, the Secretary of State stood up, gathered her papers together, and walked out of the conference room. The others took this as their cue that the meeting was over. Colleen often wondered about wisdom of having accepted this appointment. The president had once been one of her star graduate students. Even before he had been elected, he had sounded her out on the possibility of her appointment to Secretary of State in his administration. She had been flattered. Now she no longer slept well at night. The flood of disturbing information she was bombarded with never stopped. It was impossible to ignore the fact that there really were forces loose in the world intent upon destroying the privileged way of life she had grown up with and cherished. She had come to accept that only through the luck of being born to a wealthy family in post-war World War II United States had she avoided the harsh realities of the daily struggle that billions of women in the world face. To these women, to just get enough food and water to survive the, to the next day was taken for granted. Whatever pain and discomfort she experienced, she knew was minor by comparison. Knowing of her privileged lot in life did little to ease the stress she was required to cope with. Today, she felt every one of her 63 years. It was very sobering to wake up each morning and realize that if a disaster were to occur, that you were fourth in line of succession to the president. Only the vice president, the speaker of the house, and the president of the senate were ahead of her. 
She knew that no matter how well she and the others in the government tried to protect the nation, there were equally dedicated, resourceful individuals with such a hatred for the United States that they would make any sacrifice to destroy its leadership. Although recognized as a brilliant thinker, the sheltered academic life of a Harvard international law professor had not prepared her for the problems administering and leading 12,000 foreign servants' employees in 265 diplomatic missions. Focusing these employees on the safety and the well-being of the nation instead of their personal ambitions and problems was the most difficult challenge she had ever faced. At times, she felt like a total failure, but all she could do at such times was to suck it up and try not to make the same mistake again. The press was quick to publicize her errors and usually mute, mute it when it came to her wins. The end. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website, www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com. Thank you. Good night.